Ladies and gentlemen, before we get into today's episode of The Trap Draw, I have a very special guest, Mr. Neil Schuster, the merch czar. How are you, Neil? Mr. Big Randy, I'm good. Lot, lot to talk about here. What, uh, how is, uh, how's New York? It's good. You know, I'm just up here washing my hands a bunch, uh, not touching any subway poles, you know, staying out of. Staying out of the path of the virus is the goal. I think that's How are you doing? Good, good. And I think that's good advice for everybody. Make sure you wash your hands and really get under the nails. Wash each individual finger and get up into, you know, under the wrists and forearms too. Don't be, don't be shy to get up the arm a little bit. So, Randy, should I tell the folks what we're doing today? <laughs> yeah, unless you want to do more personal hygiene, yeah. No, I think we should get right into it. So we are starting a new segment here every other week on the Trap Draw uh, in a partnership with our friends over at DraftKings. Um, I, I still haven't settled on a name yet. I was thinking the Weehawk and Czar or Newark Neal or whatever in, you know, kind of in the spirit of Vegas Dave. But we will be placing a mega bonus parlay every two weeks, um, an assortment of golf bets through the DraftKings Sportsbook. I will then have to drive to New Jersey to place those bets, maybe take the ferry, maybe take the train, who knows. Uh, luckily, I'm actually flying out of Newark tomorrow, so I'll be placing the bet from the airport. Uh, but yeah, this is the Mega Bonus Parlay segment, the first one of many to come. If we hit on any of these, does that go into future strap budgets, do you know? That is a great idea that we may have to uh, we may have to call for a quorum with with the uh, the C suite and the NARC. Um, I think we should probably get that in writing before we do place any of these bets, just in case, right? I think that's something we need to get get up front. Yeah, yeah. Well, and explain real quick why what's the significance with New Jersey specifically for you? Well, it's the closest state where you can legally gamble. So, you know, the, the DraftKings app has like this geolocation thing. So I'm sitting in Brooklyn right now and they know that. So I can't place the bets, but I can do some research. Um, but once I cross over the river, baby, all bets are on, not off. Um, well, all right. Well, so talk to me about what, yeah, talk to me about what you're looking at. Well, okay. So the, it's, you know, we, we want it to be a parlay, right? And, um, you know, or at least I do. And it's my bet, so that's what it's going to be. But I'm going to keep it simple this week as the first one. So the parlay will consist of, I'll just read through all of them, and I can, we can talk about the strategy. I think uh, Fleetwood to beat to a better finishing position than Rory uh, McIlroy, who, as we all know, is, is still, still dead, um, as you've declared him. Uh, I think Fleetwood finished third here last year. Well, hold on. I'll just go through all the bets. So Fleetwood to finish um, better finish than Rory. Uh, Hovland finished in Billy Horschel. Um, our boy Max Homa, a better finish than Harris English. And Lee Westwood will not make the cut. $5 bet gets $151 payout. I think Fleetwood's going to beat Rory. I think he bounces back. He, he, he puts the uh, keep calm and carry on, you know, English mindset into practice after a tough finish. Um, and he, uh, he finished in the top three here last year. So I think he finishes better than Rory. Plus 175. Hovland over Horschel, that seems like a layup at plus 110. Um, Max got a ride for, for our guy over Harris English, plus 110. And uh, I don't think Westwood's going to have the, the juice this week. So plus 150, he misses the cut. He's, we're going we're gonna to make it a $5 bet. Or you know what we could do? We could juice it to $10. You want to do that? Sure. All right. So I'm going to put $10 in. Potential payout, $303. Yeah, I can log this bet tomorrow. What do you think about that? Can I uh, can I offer just a little bit of pushback? Uh, please do. I would welcome your advice. Of course, Rory is dead. He will remain dead until he wins a major. Um, that being said, two years ago, he won at Bay Hill. Last year, he finished tied for six, which granted that was behind Fleetwood, um, but still, you know, top ten finish. Those are always nice, and you know this year he hasn't finished outside the top five. So, what I, I guess what I'm saying is, <laughs> so listen, bud, play play well, like Tommy, play well. 
All right. Well, let's see what else. Let's, let me see what else. But, but hey, you never know. You know, that's why they call it betting. All right. Uh, tournament matchups. So, well, Rory's minus two hundred to, to beat Fleetwood, right? You know, so I'm picking a dog. I like uh, it. I like it. Do, who do yeah, they have? Do they have? Do they have Rick matched up with anybody? Oh no, I, I do. I'm seeing Rick versus Fee now. Are you in tournament matchups? Yeah, best finishing position. Oh yeah, minus one hundred six. But see, I don't like picking a favorite because does that help? Like, how does that? It's about All even right, Rick, money. Yo, no, it does. It takes up. It takes up big time. I guess because of the parlay, right? So you got to combine. Listen, I'm not the gambling's never been my strong suit, but we're gonna improve that in 2020. That that should have been on my goals podcast. Become a better gambler. So, um, are you taking Tony, the house cat, or or Ricky? I I would I take the Rictator. You're 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 taking late stage capitalism to prevail once again. Yes, don't you think so? Well, or you like I you mean, like the we, house cat? We are we are recording this on Super Tuesday. It's pretty apt. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of like the house cat because Rick's scuffling a little bit. He's going through some swing changes. He shot eighty um, last week. I think the house cat might have it, but I don't want to talk you out All right, of it. Listen, I'll, I, take I, that, I want, no, I'll take that advice. I'm not married either. I mean, this is this is a this is a good uh, dialogue here. Let's go with Finau. So. That's ten dollars to win uh, five hundred and ninety-one dollars and twenty-two cents. Love it. Um, do you like you like the max pick? You like the, the Hovland sure. pick, and you like the Westwood misses the cut pick. I I take. I wish we had more money to put on Max. Okay. Here All we, right. Good. Fleetwood is the is the one there that you don't like, huh? Well, it's not that I don't like him. It's uh, it's it's a it's it's a tall ask. It's a big ask of him. But you know what? We'll see. Uh, well, we could also throw in the the scientist, Mister Disgambo, over Matsuyato at plus one ten, mm. which ooh, now we're getting into mega bonus territory. Uh, he's plus one ten. That sends our ten dollar bet up to a potential payout of one thousand two hundred forty one dollars and fifty five cents, baby. Now this is what I like. This now we're talking. Okay. All right. So. Let's see if I get rid of the Fleetwood pick. What? What? No, got to have the Fleetwood pick. That's that's big for the odds there. I think that's what we go with. We we put ten dollars down. We go. So it's going to be Hovland over Horschel, Max over English, the House Cat over Late Stage Capitalism, the Scientist over Matsuyato, Fleetwood, Tommy Ladd over Rory, and Westwood misses the cut. Ten bucks. To win $1,241.55, baby. I love it. Lock it in. All right. Lock it in. Well, I can't do that yet until I get to New Jersey, but I will save this if that's possible. Uh, if not, I will take a screenshot, which is what I'm doing now, and uh, we're going to get this in tomorrow morning. Perfect. I got to do a little uh, – I, I got to read some legal obligation. For anybody listening who wants to get – Involved in the action, download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code NLU when you sign up. For a limited time, all new users can get a sign-up bonus up to $1,000. That's right. DraftKings Sportsbook has a sign-up bonus up to $1,000. Don't forget, enter code NLU and get your sign-up bonus up to $1,000. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. Bonus comprised of a first deposit bonus and a first bet match, each up to $500. Deposit bonus requires 25 times playthrough. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. That was my legal spiel, Neil. Um, all right. Well, hey, good luck on our bets this week. And... Um, be back in a couple weeks to, you know, talk about how we did and uh, place another mega bonus parlay. And now I will hand it over to Mr. Jeezy. Nights. I damn near went crazy, I had to get it right Now I'm your 
trapper's favorite trapper. The absolute truth, yeah, no joke. Who me? I merge from the Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Trap Draw Podcast. My guest today is the author Stephen Proctor. He has written the book Monarch of the Green, Young Tom Morris, Pioneer of Modern Golf. I've had the chance to, uh, he was so kind to send me a copy, I've had the chance to read it, and it's a great story. I Obviously, I think everybody listening knows the name Young Tom Morris, probably knows uh, he's an important figure in golf, but at least as far as I'm concerned, I didn't know a lot of the details and a lot of the uh, the why behind his significance. And this book just did a, a fantastic job of painting the picture and, and filling in a lot of the story. So real pleasure to welcome Stephen onto the podcast today to talk about the book. Stephen, how are you? I am great, Randy. Thank you a lot for having me. Really appreciate being on and uh, just a big fan of what No Laying Up does. Oh, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um, so this book, I believe, was published in 2019. Is that correct? Yes, it came out in April in Edinburgh, Scotland, published by Berlin Publishers, a small publishing house there that focuses on Scottish culture and history. Your postscript in the book is, is called An Author's Journey. And obviously, your postscript, it comes at the end of the book. But I almost think it's where I would like to start the discussion, if you don't mind. And, and I think... The, the question that I have for you right off the bat is how did this idea, how did this drive to write about young Tom Morris come to you? Well, the way it happened, Randy, was that I had decided at some point that I needed to stop doing the job I was doing, which was newspaper journalism. You know, things had gotten very disrupted there, and it wasn't really fun as much as it used to be. I didn't have as many opportunities to do the kind of literary journalism that I wanted to do because of shrinking budgets and changing priorities for all American newspapers. So I decided that I would like to retire early. Fortunately for me, I was in a position to do that financially. And I decided that I really wanted to reinvent myself in some way that would keep me doing what I'd always done, which is writing. And I'd been really hooked on golf and golf history. And so I decided that in retirement, I was going to become a golf historian. And for the last 10 years of my newspaper career, I read what I considered to be, or what I was told were most of the seminal works about the history of the game. And so naturally, once I did that, I was dying to go to St. Andrews, as every golfer eventually is wanting to do. And I went there and we arrived on a Sunday and we started with a tour of the city because the old course was closed and we weren't scheduled to play till Monday. And we went to the cathedral cemetery naturally. And I stood there in front of the monument to Tommy and I knew a, a fair amount about his story a little bit. And, uh, but what struck me was how monumental his tombstone was by comparison to other people who have gotten quite a bit more attention, namely his father and Alan Robertson, who has an obelisk nearby. But Tommy's tombstone is like 12 or 13 feet tall and takes up one whole wall of the cathedral. It's incredibly striking. You can see it from any place in the cemetery. And when I was reading the inscription on it, it, it said to me, it said that it was built by 60 golfing societies with contributions from members. And it occurred to me that that was probably every single golfing society that existed in Tommy's age or very close to it. And that turned out to be true. And then it just struck me that why have I heard so much about his father and so little about him? If he has this gargantuan monument, he must have had some extraordinary life. And I decided, well, there's a fairly untold story, so I'm going to go and tell that story. And that's how I started. I set my mind to doing it at that moment. And then I just uh, that was in 2005. And uh, so I had been reading quite a bit then. And then it was much more targeted reading toward that age of Tommy's and trying to find out as much as I could about him. So that's what got me started, seeing his monument there and being deeply impressed by it. Fantastic. And so that was your first trip to St. Andrews then in uh, in 2005? Yes, it was. It was the first time I'd gone there. I ended up going back uh, again in 2015 to finish up some research and meet with some of the key historians in St. Andrews, Peter Lewis of the Royal and Ancient Golf Club, Peter Crabtree also who gave me great guidance and help with the book, Mr. Crabtree. 
and also most of the photos that are in the book he allowed me to publish uh, free of cost, which was incredibly generous of him. Uh, so yes, I went there again. Um, I'm friends with Bill Horschel Sr., whose son is a is a pretty good professional player. And when he got in the Open Championship that year, he was very gracious and uh, let me have a room in his flat free of charge so that all I had to do was foot for my airfare and get over there and do some research. So that was a really fantastic, generous thing for him to do and uh, gave me 10 days to be there researching and then seeing the Open itself also. Oh, it sounds like uh, it sounds like the trip of a lifetime, really. I, I was going to ask. It was amazing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the research that you had to do, I imagine this is obviously a lot of old old sources, old books, old letters. Um, it, was there much available online or did you have to go to you know the, the physical location where a lot of this documentation would be? The newspapers themselves are online, but in that era they're difficult to search um, because uh, they're just not organized in the way that newspapers in the modern era are organized. So I had some assistance with that from a good friend of mine who was a golfer and a librarian at the University of California at Berkeley. I was living and working in San Francisco when I started this project. And uh, he helped me a lot, both using his borrowing privileges to help me obtain rare books and also doing a lot of research to locate uh, specific articles that I was having some difficulty locating in the online searching. So a lot of it is done uh, with memoirs um, of people who played with Tommy, like Andrew Kirkcaldy, the caddy, who later became a very um, prominent professional golfer and, and took old Tom's place at the Royal and Ancient years later. And uh, people like Bob Ferguson and others who played with Tommy had either been interviewed for books or had memoirs. And so many of the things were from those. You know, obviously, um, there's a book called The Golf Book of Lee Slothian, which is uh, a great source for st stuff from that era. So it was a lot of that kind of thing. The, the majority of it was uh, book research, and then there was a fair amount of newspaper research also. I feel I think there are like 130 books in the bibliography for that for that book. Um, so, yes, it was uh, quite a bit of research over an extended period of time. But, you know, I was the managing editor of the San Francisco Chronicle or the Houston Chronicle, nearly all of the years in which this book was researched. And um, so I wasn't really working on it full-time or anything like full-time. That's a pretty busy job. So at night and on weekends, I would do reading to, um, to be able to continue tracking the story. And then I retired in 2013, and that's when I started writing. And uh, it took me a couple years to write it, another couple to rewrite it, and then I was able, lucky enough, to, to get a person to take it in Edinburgh. So... Gotcha. That's how that unfolded. Gotcha. I, I appreciate you laying out the uh, the background. It sounds like obviously quite the process. Uh, well, if you don't mind, I'd love to jump into the book. It um, obviously is is centered around young Tom Morris. Can you set the stage for his birth and his early years, and and kind of what the game of golf and you know really life was like uh, as he came into the world? Absolutely. You know the story of young Tommy is a story of genius meeting opportunity and then nothing ever being the same after that. Tommy was born in 1851. Three years before that, the introduction of the gutty ball, the first rubber ball that had ever been used in golf prior to that was 400 years almost of the feather ball. The feather ball being made of leather stuffed with goose feathers. Extremely difficult to manufacture, extremely expensive to buy, and the net result was that only extremely wealthy people could play golf with proper equipment. When the gutty ball got introduced in 1848, it just opened the game to the masses in a major way. And that was Tommy was born in 1851. By the time he makes his golf debut at, in 1864, thousands more people are playing the game. And then the other huge change is that in the era of the feather ball, you really could only play with wooden clubs, except for desperate circumstances, such as if your ball settled down into a cart rut that was left on the golf course. All these golf courses are public places. Workmen in wheeled carts are driving over them. You would use a small iron called a rut iron to get it out, essentially. But if you used an iron on a feather ball, it might burst open, feathers flying everywhere. 
Tommy was the first person to realize and to practice greatly the notion that this new ball can be hit with iron clubs. You could use your rut iron to, in fact, approach the green, hit it really high up in the air and make it stop relatively close to the hole. So he started revolutionizing the way the game was played. And that is the story of his life. He comes along at this time. He begins to revolutionize the way the game is played. He excels at it at a level that you could compare to Tiger Woods. He separated himself from his own generation in the same way that Tiger has separated himself from the current generation. And because of that, the world of golf starts to evolve in a very dramatic way uh, and become way more popular than it had ever been. Obviously, his father is, you know, he's he's born into a golfing family. Can you talk about... His father was the most famous golfer in Scotland at that point. Yeah, I was going to say, Robertson. yeah, I think we have to talk about his father and um, his significance in the game. And then, you know, some of the other golf um, personalities and, and some of the bigger names in golf. I'm thinking of like Willie Park and if, if you could kind right. of set the stage for, sure. for these family rivalries almost. So basically during the t- time that Tommy was growing up, there was um, two families that dominated golf, the Morrises of St. Andrews, which included his father uh, and him and his brother Joff to a certain extent, not quite the golfer that Tommy and his dad were, but a p- pretty decent player himself uh, but the main ones were Tom Moore Sr. and Willie Park. And up until 1859, Alan Robertson, he had died in 1859. So the way golf was played at that time was primarily a challenge match. So, for instance, in 1854, Willie Park comes to St. Andrews, puts an article, an ad in the newspaper challenging any t- player who wishes to take him on one-on-one to play a great match over three greens for 100 pounds a side, which is a large sum of money in that era. Tom's annual salary, for instance, as the keeper of the green at St. Andrews was 50 pounds. In 1854, he was working in Presswick, and he was making less than that. He was making around 40. So you're talking about betting two years' worth of salary on a single match. And then what would happen is a very rich person in St. Andrews would back Tom Morris, and an equally wealthy person in Musselboro would back Willie Park. Willie Park, though, often put up his own money, which was completely unheard of. He had a golf ball making firm just like Tom did and, uh, and, a, and a club manufacturing firm. And he was willing to put his own money up, which is very rare. Tom was almost always backed by a man at the, from the Royal and Ancient, somebody like James Campbell, you know, who was a wealthy baron from Saddle. They would put the money up. If Tom won, they would give him a percentage of the winnings, usually around 10% or so. So he might get 10 pounds for winning that match, which is a great bonus to your annual salary. And they would play over three golf courses, 36 holes a day, over three courses. And the winner of the uh, most holes would win the match. And uh, so it was a kind of a rollicking era, more like prize fighting, really, than what we think of as golf now. People would be screaming and yelling on the sidelines. There were no gallery ropes. They'd be walking, encircling the players almost as they shot. So at that time, Old Tom was the most famous player in the land after Allen died, for sure, and one of the two most famous up until 1859. So Tommy grew up steeped in that kind of golf. Uh, He would have been following his father around, you feel fairly certain, during the Open Championships and things. And uh, but not much of that is specifically known. So he grew up in a golfing family, but it wasn't long before he really eclipsed the golfers of his own age. He was only 16 years old when he played in uh, a tournament at Carnoustie that drew 32 players, which in that era was an enormous field. You know, the typical Open Championship of that era would have 12 to 16 players. But for whatever reason, this tournament at Carnoustie drew 32, including Willie Park, including old Tom. And Tommy ended up tying with Willie Park and a man named Bob Andrews from Perth for the lead. They played in the playoff. Tommy won in the playoff, uh, which was pretty big deal because uh, the newspaper you know, referred to him as a new star rising in the firmament. And pretty much from that point onward, he was so dominant a player over that generation that Really, I don't think you can any player except for maybe Bobby Jones in his heyday and Tiger Woods have been quite as dominant in their own generation as Tommy would become in the immediate years after that. Mm-hmm. 
And that you mentioned that tournament at Carnoustie was in 1867. I want to, if you don't mind, rewind the clock uh, for young Tom. And if you could talk about that first uh, competitive event that he played in, which I believe was the 1864 Perth Open. And yes, I, I, I thought that was an interesting. Perth, and Tommy yeah. was almost 13 then, uh, 12 going on 13. And uh, he was born in April. So that tournament was right about, Right before his 13th birthday, essentially. And uh, his father had decided that he was ready to be in open competition. And he took him up to Perth with the idea that young Tom would get to play in an amateur event associated with the main tournament. Every tournament in those days had multiple events and went over multiple days because it costs you a lot as a golfer to be able to travel in that age. Uh, and you wanted to be able to have multiple opportunities to win money or make money by caddying for somebody or whatever possible so that you could at least earn back your expenses, if not a little more. And so he thought that Tommy would play in the amateur event. When Tommy got there, obviously his reputation as a, as a great golfer had preceded him, even though he was only 13. So there must have been a lot of rumors circulating around the golf world about him, although none of it's written down specifically. Yeah. And the, the, the committee in charge of the tournament barred him from the amateur event. They said, there's no way you're playing as an amateur, <laughs> partly because his father was old Tom and just partly because he obviously was incredibly precocious. And they, uh, he almost didn't get to play at all. And then one of the members of the club that put the tournament on uh, wisely set up a match between young Tommy and a kid named William Gregg, who was uh, the winner of a, in a prominent tournament up there in Perth and was about the same age as Tommy. So he decided that the third day of the event would be a singles match between Tommy and William Gregg. And the crowd that came out to see Tommy that day was vastly larger than the one that had followed all the professionals around in the turf open itself the day before, which was actually won by old Tom. And it was just a big deal. Uh, a separate story was written about him in the paper and uh, described him as cast in the very mold of a golfer and so forth. He, he waxed William Gregg. Uh, they never wrote down the precise score, but you get the impression from what they wrote that he, that he was fairly dominant in that match. And uh, so he made a huge, splashy debut there in Perth when he was just 13. And uh, you know, it wasn't long after that before he was uh, starting a major run in the Open Championships themselves. And his first Open was 1866, and I found there uh, something very interesting happened that, at that Open yes. involving young Tom. You know, I don't know. It, it's funny because, you know, you, so much is not written down. It's kind of, you're left to wonder what happened. But he played two rounds, and he wasn't playing horribly by any standard of that age, by the standard he would later said he was playing horribly. Uh, but he, he was like four or five strokes or six strokes off the lead, and he just quit. Uh, so it kind of reminded me of Bobby Jones in 1921 at St. Andrews when he, you know, plays what he considers to be very poor golf and tears his card up after the after the 11th hole there. And he finishes the tournament, actually, but not as a participant, just playing. And uh, so Tommy did, just didn't play the third round. They uh, they played those championships at Presswick, all of the early ones from 1860 on up to 1873. And that was a 12-hole course, very difficult 12-hole course, probably about 5,800 yards equivalent if you're playing an 18-hole course. Um, so long for that age, uh, and Tommy uh, just didn't continue. So no one knows exactly why, uh, but it was only a year later that he won that tournament in Carnoustie, and after that, all hell broke loose. And that's a perfect segue. The win in Carnoustie in eighteen sixty seven sets up uh you know what what you talk about, kind of a three year run for young Tom, uh between I guess actually four years, eighteen sixty eight. Even to, more five. It was more like five years or so because really between then and eighteen seventy four he was virtually invincible between okay. eighteen sixty seven and eighteen seventy four. He very rarely lost. Uh, in a in a in a match or in a professional tournament, and when he didn't win a professional tournament, he was usually second or third. So he he played unbelievable golf in that age, and uh, you know when he 
finished that 1867 at tournament at Carnoustie. He had been in a playoff with Willie Park, who, who was the reigning open champion. And um, the, uh, the next day they set up a match with him against Willie. And he just waxed Willie in the match too. So it was, uh, it was becoming very clear that he was going to be a golfer of a different caliber. And when he went to Presswick to play in the Open in 1868, he really uh, he reached a new level in those years and just played such dominant golf that, you know, in the three, he won three Opens in a row, 1868, 1869, and 1870. And uh, he won them by an average of nine strokes over those three years, which is, you know, that's sort of a Tiger-like performance by any standard. Mm-hmm. And just for listeners, that first Open Championship in 1868, he was 17 years old. So we're talking about, you know, his age 17, 18, 19 victories. Right. Um, like you he said, by an average of nine day, strokes. the youngest player ever to win a major championship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, and one of the things that occurred to me when I was researching the book is that his name never came up at all unless somebody like Lydia Ko was on the verge of winning a major when they were younger than Tommy. It still hasn't happened yet. Lydia Coe's the latest one to threaten that. I imagine someday it will happen uh, because golfers are getting so much better at younger ages. Uh, but it's a pretty pretty high bar to win the Open Championship when you're still a teenager. In fact, you know the way the rules were set up then, and it wasn't just golf. There were a lot of competitions that were like this, where if you won the thing three times in a row, the trophy became your personal property. And uh, so there was a quest among golfers to win the Open Championship belt. Uh, it was a big red leather Moroccan belt with a giant gleaming silver buckle that had a golfing scene etched on it. And that, that was the thing everybody wanted. And Tommy himself, uh, as he would tell his friends later, you know, he felt that he was destined to win that. Just in the exact same way that Bobby Jones felt that he was destined to win the Grand Slam in 1930 when he did do that. And so, you know, at age 17, Tommy won, and then at 18, he won again. But the capstone was 1870. He goes out in 1870, and Tommy's playing with like six or seven clubs and a gutty ball that won't fly more than 180 yards over a really, really difficult golf course. And he shoots 149 for those 36 holes, including one round of 47 for 12 holes which was the first round in history where any player had averaged less than four strokes per hole, any competitive round, which was really astonishing to the assembled crowd. And uh, that round, I would contend, is might still be the greatest single tournament ever played. When you think about the distance the ball flew, the rudimentary nature of his clubs, the r- rudimentary nature of agronomy, the idea that in 1870 he could shoot two 18-hole equivalent scores of 74 and a half is really mind-boggling. You know, an average score that would win a tournament in those age would be more like 86. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so it was just it blew everybody's mind, and you know, just made him such an enormously popular player that even gamblers in London started to get interested in betting on him in the tournaments that he played in and the matches that he played in. And that turned out to be the huge turning point for the game of golf. Because once gamblers in London started betting on it, naturally the papers in London started covering it. And uh, the Field Magazine for Sporting Gentlemen, as they called it, played, covered him almost step by step after the 1870 Open. And so did a lot of the London papers. And the consequence of that was that the game that had only been played in Scotland by Scottish people, there were golf courses in England, two of them, but they were played only by Scotsmen who were in the Royal court or on business assignments there. Nobody in England played golf to speak of no Englishman. And, uh, but once Tommy won the belt, that slowly started changing because he became such a huge figure in golf and uh, his fame spread the game to England. And, of course, they had a giant empire that, in turn, wound up spending, sending the game all over the globe. Yeah. And circling back to the Open specifically, 
obviously talking about his three-year run uh, culminating in 1870. It really, I was hoping you could share the, the details around 1871 because it, it wasn't, in fact, any other golfer that stopped this run. It was, uh, it was literally a lack of uh, a, a championship belt available. Exactly. When they didn't have a trophy, what happened was there was a really famous amateur player named Gilbert Mitchell Innes. And he was a forward-thinking man. And what he proposed at Presswick was that Presswick should invite St. Andrews and Musselboro to join in hosting the Open and buying a new trophy for the tournament. Um, but there was a Harry Hart was the man who ran Presswick in that age, a silver-haired guy, older man. And, you know, naturally, he was proud as could be that Presswick had founded this tournament that had become so popular and so famous now after 10 years and also the winning of the belt made it even more famous. Um, and he wanted things to stay exactly the way they were. Let's just buy ourselves a new trophy and just keep the tournament here. You know, it's something we invented. Why do we need to get other people involved? Uh, but Mitchell Innocent, and probably not only him, understood that um, if the tournament was going to be anything at all, it had to get St. Andrews involved. Uh, St. Andrews was then, still is, always will be the epicenter of golf. Musselboro is a huge golf city also and very prominent, but not quite the same as St. Andrews. And so what happened is that um, the uh, motions, debate, dueling motions got put to a vote at the Presswick Club, and uh, Mitchell Innes' motion carried the day by a small margin. But since the head of the club wasn't really wildly behind it, he kind of, you know, slow walked it, and they didn't end up solving the debate during in time to have an open in 1871 so there was no open championship that year and honestly if there had been one there's absolutely no doubt in my mind and uh in the minds of most other historians from that age based on what i've read that if they had had one tommy would have won that too there wasn't really any player who had come along who could uh compete with tommy with uh at the same level with tommy except maybe davy strath or jamie anderson two friends of his. Uh, so they finally ended up coming to an agreement with St. Andrews and Musselboro to purchase the Claret Jug, which is the trophy that we still have to this day. But that didn't happen until late summer of 1872. And so they staged the Open, I think it was like two weeks later, if memory serves, after they got the, the agreement. The Open was staged that September, and it was uh, held again at Presswick, uh, that first year in 1872, and then uh, Tommy won again, and then 1873 it moved to St. Andrews, and that was the first time that Tommy was beaten in it, and there's reasons for that that we can go into. Just uh, to recap, he, he wins four out of five Opens. The, the only year he doesn't win, there's no tournament staged, and so as you say, he's in 1872, he's now uh, 21 years old, I believe, and yes, at, at the absolute top of the golf world. Um, and then this is where, <laughs> candidly speaking, this is where I think the story really gets interesting because I, I think it, it humanizes Tommy, and um, I, I find his whole... Well, I'll I'll back up and, and let you tell the story. But but what changes? What what significant change in his life comes about um, in in eighteen seventy uh, end of eighteen seventy two into eighteen seventy three? What happens is that Tommy falls in love. There's a woman that is working as a housemaid in St. Andrews named Margaret Drinnen, and she um, is fr originally from West Lothian, which is a grimy little coal mining town. Her father was a guy that dug seams from coal mines. And uh, she was a member of a large family there. Uh, she had had a child out of wedlock there in, uh, in West Lothian. She was chained in front of her church so the child could be baptized because it was quite ill. And a couple weeks later after the baptism, the child died. And then she was managed to get a job as a housemaid in St. Andrews which is a really coveted position for a person of her station in life, because what it meant was you lived in a really nice house. You had nice clothes, you ate well, and you worked for usually pretty, pretty decent human beings. She worked for a very prominent St. Andrews couple that lived 
in the neighborhood they call the Scores, which is the one that runs up that street, right behind the Royal and Ancient Golf Club and the old course, if, if you've been there, Randy, and you know where that is. So when he, he falls in love with her, it's not clear whether or not he or anyone in his family was aware that she'd had a child out of wedlock, although I think it's almost inconceivable that he didn't know. And probably most people knew, and it's hard for me to believe that very much like that would go, go unknown in a small town. St. Andrews was a very small town there, less than 4,000 people. So he, he ends up falling in love with her and courting her through most of the year, and his game suffers a bunch as a consequence of that. <laughs> and in 1873, at the Open Championship, he gets beaten by a, by a guy named Tom Kidd, who was a caddy uh, and who had uh, played uh, professionally, as most caddies did uh, at that time. And, you know, we said the course was waterlogged with rain. It had been raining all month. And that just took away one of Tommy's main advantages, which was putting, because the greens were so soggy that it was really difficult to putt. But in any case, he loses that year. And then the following year, he and Margaret end up getting married, I think much to Tommy's parents' dismay. And even if they didn't know that she had a child out of wedlock, you know, at that time, Tommy was making bundles of money. In 1872, Tommy earned 200 pounds sterling playing golf, which is just an enormous sum of money for a boy his age. A child, you know, he's 21 or whatever. That's four times what his father made, just for starters. And that 200 pounds doesn't even count anything that he might have made betting on himself or that he might have gotten as a tip from a gentleman who made a boatload betting on him, which is very common. If somebody made a ton betting on you, they might slip you a five-pound note for winning. And so he probably made even more than that 200 pounds. But anyway, he was quite well-to-do and just earning very high-level money for the last four years or so, comparatively speaking to other people in his era. And, you know, so his parents would have naturally assumed that he would be able to marry someone in a station equally high as his or higher. And uh, unfortunately, she was, you know, quite a bit lower station than him just because her family were minors and that was considered far below Tommy in social class. And obviously, Victorian Scotland is very, very class conscious. So Tommy, you know, that's one of the most revelatory things about Tommy. He was a person who just marched to his own drummer. He didn't care what people thought. He didn't care about social conventions very much. And uh, so he, he married Margaret. He loved her, apparently. She was apparently quite a beautiful woman from everything you can read. Uh, no pictures of her exist that I'm aware of. So, uh, yeah, that, that kind of like it does when you're distracted from, you know, if you're distracted from anything, it's difficult to play golf well. Yeah. And he didn't play as at as high of a level during 1873 in the first part of 1874 uh, until their marriage happened. And the one thing I found interesting is the age, it just the age difference between Tommy and Margaret and how that kind of feeds into, you know, he, he was very willing to go against social conventions. I, I think what were they, she was much older than Tommy. I forget right now what her exact age was, but she was several years older than Tommy. You know, it's, I, I thought a lot about why would Tommy go after a woman so much older than him and so much poorer than him. And I think one of the reasons is, you know, ever since he was 12 years old, 13 years old, Tommy had spent almost all of his free time in the company of much older people than him, you know, because he was such a such a precocious genius type. Uh, he played almost exclusively with older men as their partner in foursome matches or uh, in challenge matches against older men. And so he probably uh, found Margaret much more to his liking maturity wise than a lot of the, you know, younger women who were really sort of basically raised only to be married. You know, they had, uh, um, and of course, Margaret wouldn't have been raised that way. She was raised to work. So there's probably certain things about him that appealed to her, uh, about her that appealed to him has always been my theory. You know, it's not really knowable. So much of the stuff about Tommy's life is not knowable in a, in a provable way. Uh, but he did, uh, he did um, fall for her. Probably, you know, obviously her beauty probably was a factor. Uh, but I think uh, think some of it may have been that she was a much more mature woman who uh, had seen a few things in life, and and that probably appealed to Tommy is my theory. Mm -hmm. 
So they are married, as you said, at late in 1874, uh, November yes. 25th to be exact, uh, much to mm-hmm. the chagrin of uh, Tommy's parents. And so let's roll the calendar then to 1875, and in particular, old Tom and, and young Tom are playing a match at, at North Berwick, and if you could kind of set the stage and what makes that such a significant event. Yes, so as soon as he was married to Margaret, Tommy returned to his usual form. He started winning most of the the, uh, professional tournaments that happened. He had won two of them during the year. And in the previous year, when he was a little bit down uh, on his game, and his father was very erratic with his game because he just had a lot to do. He was keeping the green in St. Andrews. He was designing golf courses all over. Of course, he was getting older. They had lost a match at – at North Berwick, I believe it was, to uh, to Willie Park uh, and Mungo Park. And so in 1875, a rematch was arranged of sorts where they would play each other at St. Andrews, Musselboro, and North Berwick, as they usually did. These great matches always took place over multiple golf courses, usually your home course, their home course, and a neutral course. That was almost always how a great match unfolded. So the third uh, leg of that match took place at North Berwick in uh, the fall of 1875 there. And it was actually a horribly played match. Everybody in it played badly. And it's just, it's a riot to read the Scotsman's report about it because they're just trying to find charitable ways to say, Everybody played horribly. Uh, <laughs> it was really a very hyped match because, as you can imagine, all four of these people had won the Open Championship. Mungo Park was the person who beat Tommy in 1874 when the tournament was played for the first time at Musselboro. And so it was a match of four Open champions. It was something that was looked forward to for the entire golf season. It was announced earlier in the year. And uh, so everybody was kind of marching up towards it. There was a huge crowd for it and quite a lot of newspaper coverage of it in advance. And um, Tommy and his father won the match on the final hole. Uh, And then just as they were standing there triumphant on the 18th green, having regained, you know, the uh, upper hand on the Park family from last year, a messenger elbows his way through the crowd and hands Tommy a telegram. And at this point, Tommy, Tommy's wife had become pregnant very soon after they got married, as, as would be the norm in that age. You would start having children immediately. And she, when Tommy left to go to um, North Berwick to play in the match, Margaret was in a period that everyone then would refer to as confinement. That means that she was in her bed being attended to by family and or a nursemaid. Um, and uh, awaiting birth because they didn't want, you know, birth was a very, very dangerous and difficult matter in that period of time. And large numbers of babies died in childbirth or very soon afterward. Um, Not, you know, I think I forget what the survival rate was, but it was like at least a quarter of all babies died young in that age. And so, uh, you know, Tommy, who knows if Tommy was worried about it or not. Um, but he obviously wasn't worried enough to not to take the trip. And that, that wouldn't have been unusual. Men were not really expected to be around when the baby was born in that age, the way they are today. And so he got the telegram. The telegram said that your wife is struggling in childbirth. You need to get home immediately. Of course, you know, travel in that age is really, really difficult. It's four o'clock in the afternoon. The only way you could get from North Berwick to St. Andrews in any kind of decent time frame was to take a train. But the last train had already left. If you were to go by horse and cart, it might take you eight or ten hours to get there, maybe more. And uh, so they were, you know, not sure how they were going to deal with it. A man named J.C. Lewis, who's a member there at North Berwick, uh, offered to take them across to Firth of Forth on his yacht, which he did do. Even that is a sail that takes five or six hours. So it would have been <clears throat> uh, really late at night by the time they arrived at the harbor there in, in uh, St. Andrews father and son before they as they were just pulling out of the harbor another telegram arrived that said that margaret and the baby were both dead uh but they never showed that to tom and or his father they could have hailed the boat to come back but they all felt that it was best for tommy just to go on so he went on he and his father land in the harbor they walked through the darkening streets 
up to the house uh, where Tommy was living, which is for the first time in his life, he had moved into a home with Margaret, uh, not living with his parents. He'd lived with his parents all his life, as every Scottish child would do until they got married. Um, and the Reverend Boyd, who was the Reverend of the Kirk there in St. Andrews, was there waiting to tell him what had happened. Hmm. And obviously it was a horrifying scene, and Tommy was incredibly stricken. So his wife and son both died in childbirth there in the fall of 1875. And that was, uh, that was obviously, uh, a blow from which Tommy never fully recovered. Yeah. Just unimaginable. Um, you know, less than a year of marriage, uh, wife and would be son. It's, it's almost, you know, if somebody made a, a Hollywood movie, um, it, with this as the plot, it's like okay, this is kind of unbelievable. You know, guy just yeah, wins a golf match. And, it. It was yeah, just, exactly. It was a terrible tragedy, obviously. Uh, and you know, the way things worked in Victorian Scotland and England at that time was you went into a period called mourning. And uh, so Tommy and his father and his brother would wear black armbands at least for a year, maybe more. Uh, and they wouldn't go do any social event of any kind for a year. They would be able to return to work. In Tommy's case, that would be golf. Uh, but they didn't do other social things because they were in mourning. And of course, you know, a couple weeks after the death, the 1875 opening stage, and for the very first time uh, since the opening occurred in 1860, there was no person named Morris in the field. Father, son, Joff, they all stayed home in deep mourning. And it wasn't for a month or so, a couple weeks at least, before Tommy actually was seen anywhere on a golf course. And obviously, you know, he was, uh, he was not himself, you know, who would be, right? Right. right. He was just uh, terribly stricken emotionally and, uh, you know, didn't play the golf he had been playing uh, up until that time. And uh, so he, uh, it was just a, just a crushing blow for the whole family, I think. Yeah, sure. I think uh, one of the, you quote a biographer of, of Tom, and he says, young Tom never really, yeah. yeah, he said, young Tom never really recovered from the shock and grief. Even his beloved game failed to rouse him. He lived as if in some trance, all his lighthearted buoyancy gone. And, I, you yeah. know, obviously that's quite understandable, uh, but he does, in 1875, he does get back into competitive golf. Uh, it's it's obviously not quite the same. I was, I was wondering if you could talk about that return and, and how difficult play. that was. You know, was. his friends obviously felt bad for him. Davy Strath, in particular, that was his best friend. And Davy was one of the very few golfers who was capable of, of, of uh, matching up against Tommy. And we should talk at some point down the road about their matches in 1873 because those are intensely pivotal to the development of the game of golf. Um, but in any case, um, they all try to find something for him to be in because they feel like they need, they need something that will help him take his mind off of this. So they arrange a match uh, with Davy Strath and Bob Martin, who was quite a good golfer, winner, two-time winner of the Open Championship eventually, against um, Tommy and his father. And, uh, you know, actually, when they first start playing the match, it seems like uh, their, their prescription was working. Tommy and his father got a five-up lead in that match. But toward the end of it, you know, Tommy just started playing really poorly. Uh, it was described as an emotional breakdown by Tullock, and I'm not sure that I think that's wholly true. I think people just by that time had such enormous expectations of Tommy that if he, uh, he didn't play well for the last four or five holes, he – he topped the drive, I think, on the 18th hole that ended up costing his team the match, which is not something that you would ever, hardly ever see Tommy do. You might see his dad do it, but not him. <laughs> and uh, so they lost, uh, even though they had the big lead. And, uh, but, you know, I, I, I think it was just, he actually, you know, the idea that he had an emotional breakdown doesn't really hold water because the very later that same afternoon, he went out and competed in, a, in another tournament for professionals. Which he, which he also didn't win. But my, my read of it is that he, he just, his heart wasn't in much of anything at that point. He was trying to keep his, you know, to make his friends happy. He, he was, uh, uh, you know, by playing and uh, also probably to get his mind off his own troubles too. 
Uh, but he just couldn't come up with the game, which uh, which I don't think of as particularly strange. Mm-hmm. I, I and I appreciate that insight because that that was something I was curious about. Um, obviously, emotional breakdown carries. You know, it it, it wouldn't be. I don't. It, I, I don't think anybody could blame him. I don't think anybody, you know, given the circumstances, it's it's quite plausible. But, um, yeah, that's interesting. I'd be more inclined to believe that if he hadn't gone out and played in another tournament like two hours later. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, so so I think that, that sort of knocks that notion down. He was out playing again the same day. So he obviously didn't have an emotional breakdown. He just didn't play good. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, Randy, but when I'm having something big going on in life that's incredibly distracting, my game always suffers. Oh, my sure. game suffers a lot, whether well, I don't I, have anything to distract I was going to say, I, yeah, I don't, need, I don't need much help for my game to suffer. But I, you know, when I was in a newspaper game and we were cutting the budget or laying people off or anything like that, I could just watch my handicap rise, you know? I couldn't concentrate and I couldn't play well. And, I, and that's how I read the Tommy situation. He was still trying to figure out, you know, how he was going to go on and how he was going to emotionally cope. And so at times he played poorly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he obviously still had a lot of game because the first 10 or 12 holes of that match, he played great. He just couldn't quite keep his focus, which I think of as normal. And uh, the fact that he went out to try again suggests that it wasn't really an emotional breakdown. It's just that he wasn't ready to quite find his game. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's uh, let's go forward then to Christmas 1875. Uh, Tommy's 24 years old, and, and what – what then happens? What's significant on uh, Christmas Day, 1875? Well, in the week right up before Christmas, friends made another big attempt to get Tommy back to, to being Tommy. And they arranged a match between him and an amateur player named Arthur Molesworth. And this was just a gargantuan match. It was 216 holes in all. So it was 36 holes a day for... I forget the number of days. I'm not uh, thinking of it right this minute. But anyway, they played multiple days. It was wintertime in St. Andrews, of course. Two of the days they played, there was snow. So guys were going in front of them with shovels and brooms. They're playing with balls painted red. You know, it's freezing cold. Uh, Tommy ends up, he gives the guy six strokes on every round and still waxes him. Uh, wins every there's multiple aspects of betting number of shots number of holds one etc etc tommy wins every bet for his friends uh but so he was really kind of somewhat back to form in that um and then he uh there was a newspaper report that said tommy had become seriously unwell and but they didn't say what happened and it's there's a lot of curiosity and debate as to what that might have been why he was unwell. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit in a minute about a new theory that I've come across since the time I published this book. But in any case, Tommy then takes a little trip to Edinburgh just to try to lift his spirits, comes back. It's Christmas Eve when he, when he comes home. And his mother was bedridden with rheumatoid arthritis by that time. And uh, his habit at life was to spend the last hour of the night sitting by his mother's bed chatting with her. So Christmas Eve, he's doing that. He goes up to, to the upstairs room where he slept and uh, goes to bed. On Christmas morning, he doesn't come down at his usual hour. And his father sends the maid up to see what's going on with Tommy. She calls for old Tom. Old Tom comes into the room, and Tommy is laying in bed with the blood trickling out of the side of his mouth, and he's dead. And uh, 24 years old, obviously a terribly, terribly shocking day in St. Andrews itself. And uh, so, you know, he had, as it turned out, he had had uh, some sort of major hemorrhage, either of a blood vessel in his heart, or something else. And um, I'll just read you a little bit of uh, what Tullock wrote about that day in St. Andrews. Yeah, please. The news spread like wildfire over the links and in the city. Consternation prevailed everywhere. Christmas greetings were checked on the lips by the question, have you heard the news? Young Tom is dead. Or the whispered, it can't be true, is it, that Tommy was found dead in his bed this morning? Everywhere there was genuine grief for so great a loss the loss of one who had been the pride of the whole golfing world. 
Everywhere the sympathy with the bereaved father and mother was keen and great. The telegraph conveyed the news to the evening papers, and the next morning, to some of us, among our belated Christmas cards and greetings came this. Obituary notice. Thomas Morris, Jr. died here this morning at 10 o'clock, 6 Gilmore Links, St. Andrews, December 25th, 1875. And that was what happened. It, it just is, like I said, thinking about the whole story in its totality, uh, it, it's unbelievable that it wasn't, you know, created as of <laughs> as a fiction or, or as a movie. It's it's unbelievable. Um, I am curious because you say in the book, uh, you know, science maybe an aneurysm in his lung, maybe a broken blood vessel uh, in his heart. I, I'm curious to hear what your new theory is about uh, potential. Well, cause when of I, death. I went to St. Andrews again this summer because the book had come out and I was invited to speak at the British golf museum and the national library of Scotland and a bookstore in St. Andrews. So I went to do those appearances. And uh, in the course of doing that, I met up with a man named David Hamilton, who's a great golf historian and a wonderful person besides. And he was mentioning to me that uh, um, he was one of the people who had been consulted by Peter Crabtree and David Malcolm when they did their massive biography of old Tom which uh which is was one of the is is probably the greatest biography of a golfer ever done and they had been asked that david is a physician they had asked a number of physicians to look at the evidence from the original uh current coroner's report and see what they thought might have been a cause uh some of them felt that it was a major artery burst in the lung but david hamilton felt that the more likely cause was probably that Tommy had contracted, unbeknownst to people, tuberculosis, which was rampant in St. Andrews at that time, and in fact was the disease that would not very many years afterwards kill Tommy's best friend, Davy Strath. So pretty good reason to think that possibly Tommy had picked it up from Davy and hadn't noticed it. It occurred to me then to go back to that piece, the article that said he had become seriously unwell, and wonder if that's what it was. In any case, David was of the opinion that it could just as easily have been a massive tubercular hemorrhage uh, that killed him the first time. Very often, like with Harry Varden, you'll have hemorrhages that don't kill you and you're able to go to a sanitarium or someplace and recover. But he he thinks it's equally likely uh, that it may have been that. So that just adds another interesting potential wrinkle. Obviously, we'll never be totally certain how Tommy died, but that was... uh, that was something new that I learned uh, learned about when I was in St. Andrews, and it's given me some reason uh, to think that maybe maybe that's true. That could be just as true as uh, a, a bursting of one of the large arteries leading from his heart. Yeah, and I think as as your book also mentioned, you know, the he it sounds like probably scientifically he did not die from you know this broken heart with with the grief and and sorrow um that he experienced but it it had to add a layer of stress and 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 it it most likely yeah, contributed no at, at some that, level yeah my favorite quote about that randy is that old tom would always say uh, when people told him that your son died of a broken heart he would just say that's nonsense if that were true i wouldn't be here either yeah which i think is uh is the best evidence you know poor old tom outlived every member of his family except his grandchildren Mm. and uh he he didn't die till 1908 which is part of the reason he's so much better remembered than his son he just lived longer had much more influence over the development of the game in the long way than tommy did in his age uh so so yeah no it's uh it's not really known and it's definitely not true that he died of a broken heart nor is it true that he drank himself to death as some people say well, to bring this full circle then, you know, you you started our conversation talking about the memorial at the graveyard in St. Andrews. Could you talk about how that memorial came to be and, you know, the, the honor that was given to him there at St. Andrews? Yes. So after Tommy died, there was a family friend named James Denham who, um, who circulated a letter to all of the leading golf clubs and golf societies of that age and there were 60 of them in all and in the letter he uh he basically says that uh you know we believe tommy deserves a fitting memorial we'd like 
to give you an opportunity to contribute to that. And so a huge sum of money is raised from those contributions. And every 60, all 60 golfing societies, every major society that existed in that era. And by that time, there were a number in England. The game had been spreading pretty rapidly in England uh, by the time Tommy died. You know, in 1864, Westward Ho opens. 1869, Hoylake opens. 1873, Royal Wimbledon opens. So golf is starting to become much more prominent in England because of Tommy's star power, primarily. Other factors are involved, but primarily that. Um, and then all these societies contribute, and they hire an, arch uh, an artist named John Rhine, and they construct this giant statue that's mostly life-size. It's a, it's, it's a carving of Tommy standing over a putt. And uh, it has an inscription on it um, that uh, talks about how he won the Open Championship three times without envy of his peers, how beloved he was, so forth and so on. And in 1878, it's unveiled in the churchyard in St. Andrews with old Tom and his, uh, survive, his other son, Joff, um, standing right beside it as it's unveiled. Most of the members of the royal and ancient there for the unveiling. The Lord Justice General of Scotland, which is something that would have been unthinkable two decades earlier, is, doing the, is leading the presentation for a person in the working class, which... I think a modern person has a hard time maybe grasping how phenomenally mind-boggling that is, that, uh, that a person of that stature would be, uh, would be leading a ceremony for a kid born in the working class. Uh, and uh, so it's unveiled in St. Andrews and stands there to this day. I, uh, it's, I, I thank you so much. I, this, this whole story and, and really coloring in, um, what was really just a name to me is I, I'm so appreciative and I have to say your storytelling is just as good, if not better than, than your writing. So I, I really, really appreciate you sharing um, your, your story and experiences and all your knowledge on, on young Tom Morris. The book, for those um, curious, it, it's fantastic reading, would make a great gift for any golfer. It's called Monarch of the Green. Young Tom Morris, pioneer of modern golf, the author Stephen Proctor. Uh, Stephen, is there a best way to get it? Is is there an avenue for people to get the book that um, most benefits you? Or it's available is most... on Amazon.com okay. uh, in the United States, in the United Kingdom, and also in uh, various other places like Australia. There's different other websites like Hive and various other places that you can obtain it also if you're not an Amazon fan, uh, but that's, it's primarily sold through Amazon. Okay. All right. Excellent. Um, yeah, this was, thank you so much. This was such a, a wonderful, um, learning experience for me. And, and like I said, I, I greatly enjoyed reading the book and, and to have the opportunity to talk to you about it is, uh, is a real treat. So thank you so much, Stephen. Randy, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, it, it, it's enormously helpful to, to get on a podcast like this and, and get an opportunity to spread the word. So deeply grateful to you and to the No Laying Up crew. So thank you so much.